Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Ogarico. We've got a, a great show for you tonight. going to be starting off here with uh, uh, another discussion on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, I think we're going to be one light tonight, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, and then a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by my very special guest, Byron Casper, uh, golf professional and, of course, the son of legendary uh, golfer Billy Casper. Um, and he'll be joining me uh, a little bit later on in the broadcast. Uh, obviously, uh, many, many people are uh, trying to dig out what have you from uh, Hurricane uh, Ian that uh, hit uh, lower part of uh, Florida, particularly the uh, Fort Myers area. Our, certainly our thoughts and our prayers go to uh, all of the folks there. Uh, the storm, of course, has continued on in through uh, Orlando and, and up into the Daytona and is expected to uh, make landfall, I believe, tomorrow in South Carolina. So uh, certainly not as strong as it once was, but certainly strong enough to do some damage. So uh, everybody stay safe, hunker down if you need to, uh, get out of the area uh, in, in South Carolina if you can, just in case, or make sure that you're in a, a well-protected area. We don't want to see uh, uh, anyone uh, hurt or what have you. Um, properties can be replaced, people can't. So um, our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody. Again, stay safe. All right, as I mentioned, uh, I think we're going to be one uh, short tonight. Uh, John Hughes, of course, uh, lives in the Orlando area. Uh, they were hit uh, late last night and I think early this morning a little bit um, with uh, Hurricane Ian um, and uh, a lot of issues down there with cell and, and uh, other services and that. So it looks like he's not going to be joining us. But we are, of course, always happy to have my very good uh, friend join us, Clint Wright. He's the other panelist tonight. He's a 30-year member of the PGA and one of the partners at TGM Golf. Uh, TGM uh, Golf is a big proponent of the R3 approach, which he's talked about here on the show. And uh, I consider him to be uh, among one of the best covering the short game and certainly a, a very favorite guest here on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, Clint, welcome to uh, Coach's Corner, Golf Talk Live. Yeah, happy to be here, Ted. It, uh, it's unfortunate I was looking forward to being on with John, but I I do do understand the circumstances there, and hopefully everything's going all right for him. Yeah, the main thing is he, you know, I, I did communicate, as I mentioned to you off air, I did communicate with him uh, earlier today, and he certainly, uh, uh, physically everything is fine. Uh, obviously some uh, some issues, but it doesn't appear to be as extensive as, as other places. But, uh, again, there's some uh, sketchiness with the services and that, so that's understandable. So. Uh, main thing is he's safe, sure. and that that's what's important. And uh, I have no doubt he'll be joining you probably the next time. So, um, all right. So we're going to talk about a few th different things tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, 
some senses commonly talked about in golf like instinct, feel, and visual visualization. And a little bit later on, I'm going to ask you, obviously, uh, as John's not here, um, your view of the teaching profession as it's changed from day one until now. So when you first became a, a golf professional and that, uh, and you look, yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of good stories to share. So we'll, oh, yeah. we'll dial that. Well, I've been at it way. That's a wrong question <laughs> to be asking me now. <laughs> well, we're going to oh, try. Okay. Just remember, due to FCC regulations, you've got to keep it clean. We'll be kind. So I don't want to hear. We'll be kind. Yeah, be kind. No, but, we'll be kind. Um, but we're we'll going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk about really from a from a, a teacher professional side is what I'm getting at is is you know some Certainly. of the things that you change is obviously some may be good, some bad, what have you. But I just want to get an idea of of how you see a lot of things going on. But we'll we'll talk about that sure. a little bit later. And as I said, I'm going to hold you okay. to to keeping it clean. All right. So we'll, the first we'll thing be, is we'll be just fine. Yeah. I know you. <laughs> All right, the first one we're going to talk about is instinct. And just so that people understand, that's an innate, typically fixed pattern of behavior that we often see in animals in response to certain stimuli. So an example, birds have an instinct to build nests, a uh, uh, natural or intuitive way of acting or thinking, uh, natural tendency, that sort of thing. So my question to you is, how much of a golfer, or how might a golfer, excuse me, tap into and evenly apply his or her instinct to better their game on the golf course. What, give me some, some examples of how they may dial in that instinct. Um, and I think this is, is it something that's going to be more applicable to uh, uh, somebody that's played a little bit more often, or is it possible even for a new player to sort of tap into a certain innate uh, instinct uh, while they're out in the golf course? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I think it could be maybe a little of both. I mean, I've seen, you know, good athletes that had never played golf before just use their athletic ability or what you might call instinct for a ball and stick game. Mm -hmm. You know, throw the ball, you know, eye, hang, you know, eye to uh, hand contact uh, of the ball. And you might want to put that in that instinct category. They just have an innate ability to, to coordinate, you know, the stick towards the ball. I mean, you see that in a lot of baseball players that come mm -hmm. out of baseball, they want to play golf, they have that instinct on how to hit it. You also see that in hockey players that uh, have an instinct for impact, how to hit the ball hard. You know, so if you want to lump that into instinct, I think that's one thing that you can look at their, their athletic ability for impact in another sport that they could rely to God. But as far as an accomplished player, I think the instinct comes from a little bit of, of historical knowledge and understanding what happens when you do certain things. Uh, particularly that instinct comes into play when I maybe need to use my imagination a little bit to, to get the ball to bounce onto the green or recovery shots. The instinct that we have from a historical basis to, to understand if I hit it over there, that slope of that instinct, I know that it's going to bounce the other way. So. You can call that instinct. I think it may be tied into experience and mm -hmm. touch and feel. You know, some people have better better touch and feel for certain shots. So if you lump that into instinct, I think their instinct, if that's the case, comes into play a lot in the intermediate shots, the things that were established in certain length of swings like putting and chipping and, and pitching, that those instincts and feel uh, you rely heavily on. So if that's how we want to lump that into instinct, I think it plays a major role. 
uh, once we get yeah, closer and, and, to the grain. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think instinct is also um, paralleled with experience. I think as you become more experienced players, I mean, you look at a lot of the tour players that have been out for a number of years, instinctively they know, and, and of course they're playing many courses repetitively throughout their career, so they get familiar with, with how things, as you said, the slope or, or what have you, um, so that sort of na- that instinct kicks in, and I think there's certainly an, a natural instinct as well. I mean, we know uh, when we walk up or down a hill, we know how it feels on our feet. Uh, so we know that obviously if the ball gets on a hill that's down, going down a downslope, in other words, that the ball is going to react a certain way. Conversely, if we're going on an upslope, it's going to react a certain way, side and in otherwise. So again, we we develop a, an instinct, if you will, based on our experiences as well. And I think that's a great point to put in there because. The more you play, um, I think the more you develop that that instinct. Certainly, you have a natural instinct. I think everybody does. We have an instinct for danger and and uh, to you know most cases to to avoid things. Uh, but I think it, in in golf it can be very very advantageous to go on your instincts. Sometimes again, if you're a player who has not played a lot and you're not maybe consistent with your ball striking, um, instinctively you know okay this might be a shot if I've got to hit over water might not be a good idea. So your instinct kind of kicks in to say, you know what, I'm not really a great iron player yet, so I might need to lay up or I might need to, to consider another option. So I think instinct definitely plays a role there. And you also touched on, which we're going to get into now, is feel. And of course, feeling is uh, being aware of through uh, touching or being touched. Um, and some golfers claim to develop that sense of feel, like a well-struck golf shot. Others might feel... Uh, you know, the breeze blowing in their face, allowing uh, some to alter their strategy. So, uh, again, I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, some people say, well, there's really no such thing as a feel player. It's just, you know, in their head and whatnot. Um, I believe in, in feel. Um, I know certainly there's there's other factors that can be involved, but I think there are a lot of players who do play by feel. What what are your thoughts? Oh, there's there's no question about it. I mean, I see, and you have too, as, as a teacher. I, I see people that that play a hundred percent by feel. They they don't mm-hmm. want to know. They they don't they don't need a range finder. You know, they 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 look at it. They get the feedback visually, and, and they feel the the shot that they need to hit. Um, there's there's no question. You hear people talk about well, he's got soft hands. Well, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the feel. He doesn't, or you've heard the come. Well, he's got blacksmith hands, you know, just, you know, just nothing there. And so there, there's no question their feel. I mean, we want to feel the movement of our body through a full swing. You know, it, it's not mm-hmm. something that we can technically do as far as just, you know, you know, spot A, spot B. You know, go through this technical thing and grind your swing to a halt. We want to be able to develop a a good technical uh, swing, but then we mm-hmm. talk about, we ask, well, what did that feel like? If we ask right. that question, we're admitting that feel matters, okay? So I, I have a hard time believing that as a good a golf instructor that um, that we don't think feel plays a major role in a person's ability to improve and also to be able to use what they have already what they already know when they're out playing. So absolutely, feel feel is huge and um, as we get older uh, we can discuss this a little bit later possibly on the green it becomes terribly important because Mm -hmm. we our eyesight maybe starts failing on us a little bit 
So understanding what a stroke feels like for certain distances may play better for us uh, than than trying to visualize how, how we hit it. So we want to know a few things that we can talk about later. Yeah, I can concur with, with the eyesight. I'm going to the optometrist in two oh, weeks. So, yeah, so yeah, to get my, my prescription right. updated. So, yeah, exactly right. But, you know, it's interesting because there are some out there that are in the camp of, well, um, they claim that, well, you can't really develop a real sense of feel. But I agree with you. I think that certainly mechanically when it comes to the golf swing, we try to have, uh, again, certain uh, movements that we ideally uh, are conducive to, to striking the, the shots well. But then you want the player to, once they, once they are created, once you've created those movements for them, now you want them to feel that sensation. Um, it's just like when, sure. you know, it, it, we go back to when you were first born and, and you took your first steps, you know, you're kind of feeling your way, you're wobbling a lot, but then over time you feel what it means to, or what it's like to, to actually walk. And then obviously over time as your body develops, it becomes more, uh, in most cases, it becomes more pronounced. Um, so I, I'm in your camp with that. I, I do believe, um, now some may have a, a stronger sense of feel, um, but again, that kind of goes back to the first part is is uh, through instinct and through, um, uh, you know, experience as well. I think the, some players that have a very strong feel um, based on their experience, they know that, okay, this feels right to me um, because I recall it from past experiences. So, you know, a, a lot of times that ties together, like you said earlier, and I think feel is extremely important. And I'm somebody who has always had to, I mean, I'm, a, I'm both. I'm a visual and a feel person. Um, you can talk to me all day long. Um, you know, this was probably one of the issues I had in school is, you know, the teacher would be up there giving the lesson. But until I could visually see what it was they were explaining, it was very difficult for me to, to sort of comprehend certain things, not everything, but certain things. And then if it, was, if it required physical movements, then I would actually have to feel that movement to say, okay, yeah, this is what. So I think it, it, you're exactly right. I think feel is extremely important, and I think it does play a role. Um, I just think there's various degrees depending on the player. Uh, any final thoughts here? No, because I think you're right on right on the spot. I um, is that uh, I had a give a lesson I had a work with and he uh, was having serious trouble. You know, twenty twenty five feet thirty putt. He was really struggling, and I began to ask questions. I said, you know, can you really see the hole from here? Because mm -hmm. he's you know, in his early 70s, he said, well, it's not as good as it used to be. I said, well, that's our problem. And right. I got him in the smart stroke for certain distances. So the only way you do that is what it feels like. So he began to develop a feel for his benchmark strokes. I said, okay, let's step it off now. He knew how mm -hmm. far away he was. He knew what that benchmark stroke felt like. And his, his lag putting improved dramatically. Because mm -hmm. he was now working 100% off of feel. He couldn't rely on his eyes to give him the, the data anymore. Mm -hmm. So he would then, you know, years ago, look at it, get a feel for it, instinct, if you might, uh, or feel, and he would roll the ball well. But all of a sudden, he, over a period of time, he began not getting the best data back through visual. So then he had to go about what his hands and arms felt and develop those benchmark strokes. And so if that works, which it does, we have to have feel and instinct.
no no question about it. So yep. if any and, of our, our listeners are out there and that, that visual problem, that's a really good way of maybe helping your lag putting out a little bit is get into how far away it is, step it off, and know what your benchmark strokes do. It'll help you dramatically. Right. Exactly. And coincidentally enough, we're going to finish off on this segment uh, with visualization. That, of course, is referring to the representation of an object situation or, or set of information right. as a chart or other image. So the formation of a mental image of something. So uh, visualization can be a great asset to any golfer. Um, many uh, pro golfers express how they use visual, visualization excuse me, on the golf course. Um, m what mm -hmm. might be some ways uh, our club... Uh, or amateur golfers can use visualization to benefit their game. So give us an example. I mean, you just gave one here, but, um, you know, what are we looking well, for you know, when we're visualizing something? Go ahead. Well, you know, now, I've, I have never been one personally uh, to use a lot of visualization um, off the tee or, or possibly even off the second shots. But... In my chipping, particularly in pitch shots, like on par fives, I have always tried to visualize where I want the ball to land. Mm -hmm. And will the ball, you know, how hard do I have to hit it by feel again to come back around? How hard do I need to hit the ball by feel to make it fly that far? So I don't know whether that was particularly visualizing the shot in itself or whether I was trying to visualize where I wanted it to land for the rollout. The, and so, but I think that's an individual thing. I mean, some people can can see it and visualize it, like Nicholas, you know, and his comments about he always saw the ball land on the green and roll up towards the hole. He, he would visualize the ball going in the hole before he hit it. So I don't know so if all of us have the ability to do that. And But if we do... It, it, it's certainly beneficial to to imagine what you want to have happen uh, and try to get um, you, your body set into to creating what you saw. So I don't think there's anything negative about it. I, I'm just not sure whether we all have the ability to do that um, in all circumstances. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I agree with that. But I also think I, I think there is the ability. I think the problem is most people either don't use it uh, or don't understand. I'll give you an example. You know, we often you yeah, use maybe. one with Nicholas, but, you know, you, you hear a lot of players on tour say, you know, when they're stepping up and see what I'm doing is I'm visualizing where I want, uh, where my target is, that sort of thing. I'm visualizing the ball flight, you know, that I want to hit. So I think that that's more of what they're referring to. But I agree with you. I think really, you know, when you're when you're talking about, you know, off the tee or unless you're going – it's your approach shot, but if you're laying up as an example, you've got a pretty big error, um, a, a room for error, if you will. I mean, if you've got a, a, a fairway that's, you know, 30 yards wide or, or what have you, um, you've got a pretty open area. So if you don't quite hit the target as long as you're in the fairway, you know, it may not be the ideal approach depending on which side you were going for. Um, so you have some flexibility. But, of course, as you put it, as you're, you know, now trying to visualize it going onto the green and rolling up towards the hole – um, that that room for air margin for air is the word I was looking for becomes a little bit smaller. Your green obviously isn't going to be as big as what your fairway is. So uh, so I think visualization can play a key role for most players. I think the truth of the matter is, and I, I don't I, I don't want to go ahead and throw a percentage out, but I'm going to anyways. I would say probably 80 <laughs> percent. Okay. 
of, of most amateur golfers never even consider visualization. They go out there, they look at the fairway, you know, one of two things happen. They either see the trouble, uh, if there is any, and that's what they're focusing on. They're trying to certainly avoid it. Uh, they just want to hit it out. They want to hit it straight. They want to hit it long. Mm-hmm. They're not really playing what we often hear as, as target golf. Um, there's a smaller percentage, and obviously at the professional level, that's what they're doing. But the majority of people couldn't care less. They just, I want to rip it out there. I want to get it as far as I can to give myself an opportunity to go for the green if I can. And that's what right. they're really doing. So they're not really visualizing the shot. You know, a lot of times, I'm sure in lessons, you, you, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you might have said, okay, I want you to visualize the shot you're about to hit. I guarantee 90% of them don't. They haven't got a clue. They're just, well, I just want to hit well, it straight. I, well, okay, yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think you're being generous at 80%. I think probably yeah, well, closer well, to 95% don't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now, I, I really, and we can talk about this, but I, I have personally, I don't ask my students to visualize a hole when we're on the piss tee or I'm right. around the grain. I, I have a different approach to it um, that we can talk about, but it's it's one of the things I think they have a hard time doing that, particularly when they're right. You're, you got an hour's worth of lesson, and they're going. I, I don't. I can't. I can't lock in on a hole that I'm going to play. I, I don't know. You know. So right. I um I I use a little different approach, but it, that that still works for a lot of people. It's fine. Yeah, and, and that's something that I, I think it goes either way. So give us an example then. If if you're not doing that, give us the example then of what okay. you do. What, well, do, what have you found what works, works well for you? All right. Mm-hmm. I, right. We go out, and let's say I'm, I'm giving Ted Uckery a lesson, and we're hitting sand, seven irons, let's say. So what I want you to do is we're going to work. If you have a problem that we're working on, we're, we're getting through it, and we, we've now got you through that, that issue uh, of a technical thing that we're working on. And what I want you to do is to tell me a hole that you normally play that you hit a seven iron on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you give me a hole, uh, par three possibly, mo- most likely that you hit a seven iron on. And we're going to hit ten shots, and I want you to judge those shots based on how successful they would be on that hole. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yep. if you hit seven shots and you say, well, all those seven shots would have been on the green, then we don't have anything to fix with your swing because you're, you're hitting right. 70% of the shots on the green. We'll take those three that don't get there. But but I, I tried this experiment not too long ago with a real good friend of mine. I said, well, how many of those shots would you got on the green? So I think eight of them would. And I said, you know, well, how many of those shots would you have thought would have been good if you were judging them based on the driving range attitude? He said, maybe three mm-hmm. of them. So I said, then you just wasted a lot of time trying to fix five swings. Right. So what I try to get people to do is to begin to judge their ability based on what they're going to do on a particular hole. And if, if they're getting success or what we, you know, uh, I, I didn't coin this phrase, a, a lady by the name Jane Story coined this phrase. It was practice for performance practice. We're mm-hmm. practicing for performance. So therefore the performance needs to be more long-term, not just on one hole. So that's why I'm saying, okay, we're going to have 10 shots at that green. And, you know, we do this on the practice team because the superintendent don't want you hitting 10 balls at one green. Uh, two right. Ball marks. So pick out something. If you want to visualize that green on the, on the practice tee, by all means do that. But we need to begin to judge 
our success on the practice tee based on the performance that would have occurred where we normally hit that club. And mm-hmm. the driver's the same way. Pick a fairway, not real narrow. How many of those balls would win the fairway? If the majority of them went in the fairway, put your driver back in the bag, you're swinging okay. But I see so many people that will hit, give a lesson to, and they hit two real good shots. They hit when they look at you, well, what did they do wrong then? Well, right. two out of three ain't bad, as far as Meatloaf said, okay? Uh, <laughs> two out of three ain't bad. And so, you know, so there's nothing wrong with the third one. Let's just focus on the fourth one and see if we can make a good swing again. Um, so that's the approach I take to it versus just pure visualization of the whole. I want them to begin to, to judge their performance based on certain holes when they're looking to say how good you know we we come always down to the debate of when do you tell a student their swing is good enough and that's the way i try to get them to understand hey your swing's good enough so if you're not shooting the scores you want to shoot maybe we ought to go over to the pitching and putting area and figure out what's wrong right because your full swing's okay but we have to prove that in such a way that they recognize that their performance on the practice would have been good enough on a particular hole they play. And and that's just the way I try to convince them that that their swing is good enough right now. Not to say we won't have to come back and work on some technical issues in the future, but right now it's okay. Yeah, and and so really what you're doing is you're really focusing on the results. You know, are you getting the desired results on that particular hole as opposed to the process? And I think, unfortunately, a lot of players and even some coaches tend to focus on the process more and obviously they're trying to get good results. I'm not suggesting that they're not. But as you said, I mean, how many times, think about this, and, and we've talked about this before, but think about how many players, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, by today's standards, of course, I'm talking about, like Trevino right. and some of the others, who had less than ideal-looking swings but got great oh, yeah. results. Well, are you going to change Lee yes. Trevino despite, you know, you know or, or even a, a, a Jim Furyk or even a Freddie Couples who has, you know, uh, even a John Daly, who obviously overextends by most people's standards, but look at the results. And I think well, you're, you're exactly right. I think why do you yeah. want to change something? Uh, and I'm talking from a player standpoint, not just the coaches, but as a player, That's right. it may not be the prettiest swing out there, but if you're shooting low numbers, why do you want to make changes? We're We're performers. If you look at it, right. we have to consider ourselves performers. So how did I perform today? Well, I didn't perform that good the other day, so I'm going to go work on a couple of things and get some clear intent on what I'm wanting to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another subject we can talk about one that's clear intent. Very seldom do first amateurs end up with any clear intent on how to move their body. They have clear intent on where they want the ball to go, they try to aim it. Mm-hmm. That's clear intent on where I want it to go. But unfortunately, they don't have clear intent on how I'm going to make it go there. Right. Um, so, so that's part of this performance. If I can get clear intent on how I perform, uh, very much like a dance step, I need to know the steps. My clear intent is to move my right foot first and my left foot. That's clear intent. And then I learn mm-hmm. to do that uh, more second nature, per se, or not automatic because it's not I learned how to do it. It's not automatic, but it's something I have instincts, if we want to go back to that, to do. But I have to have clear intent on what that is um, because 
I know where I want it to go. Now I have to be clear on how I'm going to make it go there. And that's part of the process. You know, I want it to go there. I have to aim correctly. I have to set it up properly. I have to have a reasonably good technical swing. So we're talking beyond the beginner here. We're talking beyond the person right. that, that literally can get the ball in the air and move it forward. So how do I maximize uh, my performance with what I have? And that's where I like to get people to look on the practice tee. Well, how did I perform based on where I'm going to play? I don't want them to base their, their, their ability on performance on the practice tee because we all have a higher standard on the practice tee. See, we, we have a higher standard and we want to see the ball fly and we want to see it to fly high and we want to see it to fly straight. But our performance gauge on the golf course is where it lands and where it stops, not how mm-hmm. it flies. Okay? So what I want people to begin to do is to understand I want to judge my performance based on golf course situations, not on driving range situations. So although right. I may have hit that seven iron a little thin, it went right at my target and it went a reasonable distance. That ball's on the front of the green. But if I mm-hmm. used my driving range standard, I was unhappy because I caught it a little thin. And that creates me wanting to do something better than I need to. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and I think you – no, know, it makes perfect sense. And I think what a lot of it is, Clint, to be honest, is I think a lot of people forget the fact that when they're on the practice range, they're in ideal conditions. They're playing on a flat <laughs> surface. Certainly. You know, uh, right. certainly well-manicured, man- uh, you know, teeing area for the most part. I mean, uh, you right. know, if they're smart, they, they know where to, where to place the ball if they're going to sure. uh, hit some That's shots. Uh, so you're playing really in an I- ideal situation. Now you fast forward out in the golf course, and, you know, suddenly you've got a, a bit of a slope in your stance or, uh, you know, balls above your feet or whatever the case is. So now there's other factors that come into it that you didn't have on the range. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you're right. I think this is where, you know, performance uh, and results are what's key. It doesn't matter how you get there um, as long as you're getting the desired performance. So as long as you're comfortable with the outcome or the result, it doesn't matter whether you're hopping on one foot and, you know, uh, that's right. doing your happy dance. That's right. I mean, within reason. I mean, I, I'm just obviously being well. Sure, but, there, there's basic but, fundamentals. Yeah. Sure, exactly. But as long as I'm making good club face contact on the ball, and the ball is going in the the direction, the desired direction I want it to, whether it's low, high, you know, going a little left to right, right to left, mm-hmm. is irrelevant as long as the result, the desired result, uh, is happening or certainly close proximity. Correct. And and I think. How many times we see people on the range, even just practicing, they're not doing that. They're they're more concerned. Okay, can I get it looking perfect? Can I get? It? And then they come out to the practice tee next time with their coach or their or their teaching pro, mm-hmm. and they're they're well. Look, see, I got my arm in the right place. But then you look at the result of their shot, and it's like, okay, yeah, your swing looks right. good. Unfortunately, you know some of the, the the problems you're having are still there. It looks pretty. Right. But you're not getting the desired results we want. So, yeah, it's a matter of priority. It's what you want to do. Do you want to be a good player, as you've talked about many times, or do you want to be a good-looking player uh, but not getting right. results? So, uh, you know, well, on you the know, golf course and shooting. Yeah. Go ahead. 
it, it's interesting to, this may be a little bit nitpicking, but you refer to going to the range, and with all due respect, this is nothing negative, but it's just the way you look at things, is that you refer to going to the range to hit some shots. I don't mm-hmm. do that, and I try to get my students not to do that. I want them to go to the practice area to make some swings. Right. I want them focusing on their movement. They're going to hit shots on the golf course, but not on the practice mm-hmm. tee. We're wanting to be able to try to manicure and to work our swing motion, judge how well that's producing for a shot that I want to visualize, if you want to, that I'm hitting on that, that hole that I hit that club the majority of the time. So there's this, this I'm going out, I'm going to make some motions, I'm going to make some swings, and then I want to judge them based on what that shot would have looked like on the course, not what it might have looked like on the practice tee. Again, right. we go come back around to it, there's a different standard. You know, I always ask my students, well, what's your, what's your standard of acceptance on the, on the range? And they'll always say, I want to see it fly towards my target. Well, I always ask them, how many times did you watch that range ball stop? Well, never. Right. I said, well, then how many times do you watch it stop on the golf course? They said, every time. I said, there you go. You need mm-hmm. to either stop watching it on the golf course or begin to watch it on the range, <laughs> one or the other. Well, marry them together to because, you know. Yeah, yeah go just, ahead. To, just to add to that, no, just to add to that, no, you're exactly right because here's what happens on the range. Um, with With them – you know, hitting their their swing on the on the on the range. Sure. What happens right. is as soon as they don't get the desired flight or result that they want, they immediately just are going to the next ball. As soon as they see, well, oh, that came up real low. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. On the golf course, again, different from the range is now you have a penalty involved. So there, there's repercussions. So if your ball doesn't hit, uh, you know, come off the club face in the ideal manner you want it to, suddenly you've got this low bearing shot. Maybe there's a pond up there. Now you're worried, is it going in the pond or, you know, is it going to, you know, is it going to make it over or what have you? So now you're looking at the consequences of that, of that swing. Whereas on the range, you don't care. And the, the truth of the matter is you should care. You should see what happens. I mean, even, even though I understand that the, the, the practice area is, is certainly much different than on the golf course, if you're hitting to a sure. green – on, on the practice tee, you should see what's happening to that ball. You know, if you're hitting it and you're flying it to the flag on, on the practice green and it's bouncing over, well, that's not a shot you want on the golf course because it's not getting the desired result you want because now it's going off the back of the practice green. So if you're faced with that same shot or a similar shot on the golf course and you hit that sa- execute that same swing, then now all of a sudden the ball's flying off the back of the green. So you need to pay attention. You're exactly right. You need to pay attention to what's going on uh, on on the practice tee with all of your shots, the same as you would on the golf course. Otherwise, course. you're not really yes, going to learn. You're not learning anything. Yeah. So, all right. So I want to move possible. on. We, we, yeah. Uh, one, yeah. One last thing. If possible, should be the same distance as certain greens on the golf course would be for you. Try to match those things mm-hmm. up. That gives you a better mm-hmm. a better read. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. No. I agree. That that's 100. percent all right, so we're going we're gonna to move on. I told you I said I was going to ask you uh, about some changes. So what are some of the changes that you've seen since you first became a golf 
professional? What are some of the changes? And, and I'm talking purely instructional. We can certainly talk about other th- things sure. if you want, but oh, yeah, at some point. Yeah. But from instructional, so okay. fr- from the very first day that you stepped out on the on the on the uh, uh, you know at, at the facility, wherever it was that you started your career, right? Sure. What was what was teaching like for you then? And as you look as the years went on, what were some of the changes? that you've seen since you first became a pro? And obviously there's some obvious ones. We can talk about those. Well, but generally, what was... The technology. The, the technology right. involved from the time that I started teaching. Because when I started teaching, I, I was... The first time I had to really teach was in Lakeland, Florida, right there where near John's at, at a club called Imperial mm-hmm. Lakes Country Club. And I got an opportunity to teach the Tuesday morning ladies group. I was 19 years old, so nobody else wanted. To, I, I don't. Nobody else wanted to do it. It was in the morning, and it was, you know, so I got a chance to teach it, and I learned a lot from those ladies. They were very kind to me, and because I really was way in over my depth, and, and I, I learned a lot from them. So as you go, you begin to understand as you learn from your students as much as they learn from you. That's the one mm-hmm. thing that has changed. But it hasn't. I still learn from my students as well now. But the, the big thing is, too, obviously, one is technology. When I first started teaching, the big technology then was a sequence. It could take a, a, you know, a Polaroid and get eight different sections of a picture that should have swim. And you try to show your students what you want to hear there and there, you know, so it was interesting. But, you know, I finally figured out that an old guy learns an old trick. You can do that with your cell phone now. You right. just hold the button down and do the same thing. But technology for video cameras and now the launch monitors and things that, that, that a lot of the young guys use, um, you know, that, that we – you know, I was taught in, at the time frame where you, you had to have an eye. You needed to understand the ball flight. You needed to understand the cause and effect of, of things with the equipment. Um, mm-hmm. Nowadays, you know, we use the, the trackmans and the Garmins and, you know, all the, the, the bells and whistles. So I, I think that the older pros of our age or, or maybe a little bit younger uh, have a better eye maybe. But not necessarily mm-hmm. be better teachers. I mean, we got an eye for right. it, uh, that that instinct or that feel we talked about all evening. Uh, but the and the equipment, I mean, I think it's far easier the internet than it was, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, look at the size of the heads on the the equipment. Right. It, it's just easier to get a person to get it in the air now. You know, I used to years ago, if I had a beginner, I would tee the ball up with an iron form a little bit. Hey, let's get the ball up in the air a little bit, and then we'll learn to put it on the ground. I don't do that anymore. I mean, no. the clubs are so good and, and of, of lofting the ball, we don't have to do that anymore. So, actually, I think teaching a beginner is becoming a lot easier uh, simply because of the equipment advancements we've got. Um, the hybrid woods and, and they big-headed drivers, it's just easier um, to, to get a student going. I mean, the putters are so much, you know, the sweet spot on putters are so much wider now than they were when we all putted with bullseyes, you know? Um, right. So those two things have really uh, the, the the hallmark of, of instructions without a doubt. It's just pure information. And, and also, I mean, you, you know. 
Yeah, and, and with the irons, the same thing. I mean, you know, typically, you know, you had a lot of your earlier sets of irons were more traditional blade uh, forged irons. Sure. Now you've got more forgiving irons. Again, much like the driver, a much bigger, more yes. forgiving head, uh, very uh, better, much better feedback as well. I think also, and I wanted to ask you this because, uh, and, and, and again, this is not, when I ask this, I'm not necessarily suggesting um, that you did it this way, but do you think right. earlier on in instruction, do you think that a lot of the industry was teaching to a certain methodology, whereas now they're looking at players more as an individual? So another, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, you had come along, uh, you know, not too many years ago, the, the sort of the tack, uh, uh, um, uh, stack and tilt uh, method, and then you had you know, uh, something that led better, the, the A-swing, and you had all of these different sort of methodologies coming out. Do you think for a while the industry was going down a path where a lot of instructors were adopting a specific method uh, of, of teaching and everybody was teaching as a po and sort of putting everybody in the same box? Did that, I mean, it may well, not happen very early on in your career, but there was a point in time that that was beginning to happen. And now you're seeing it sort of going to, okay, now we're going to focus on you as, a, as an individual and teach not to a method, but to your individual um, needs and so forth. Did you see that earlier on in your well, career as well I, I, or no? I, well, I'm, oh, yeah, without a doubt. But I still think it's there. I, I mm -hmm. think that we, we maybe have we, – well, let's, let's see if we can phrase this correctly – is that, you know, back in the day, there was sort of square. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. That was a just golf something, you know, square to square. You had the Hogan's yep. Method, the Five Fundamentals. Uh, uh, you know, Byron Nelson's and Harvey Pinnock and Percy Boomer, they were all, this is how you do it. Tommy Armour. Right. You know. Yep. Uh, Jones. And, you know, here's how you do it. Play Golf My Way by Jack Nicklaus. Um, right. It was there. Okay. I don't think that, that I ever got to say to a student, you know, I want to look like this. I think if you look at all of those, quote, systems or methods, they all had a, a very common denominator built in to mm -hmm. all of them. Right. Fundamentally mm -hmm. a good grip, fundamentally a good athletic stance. We've moved the body to the right on the, uh, you know, talking about right-handed players. We, we've moved the body to the right on the backswing, and we've moved the body to the left on the downswing. And how we hold our body together in those in that movement is where those methods were different. You mm -hmm. know, Hogan wanted you to keep your elbow closer to your side going back. Sneed and Nelson, these guys were a little bit more, you know, Jack Nicholas a little bit. Let's extend and, and turn. And we get into the the uh, X factors and keeping the hips quiet and turning the shoulders more. But it all had those good fundamentals in there, good grip, good stance, move your body to the right, move your body to the left. Now, I think that uh, we have seen possibly a move towards these are the fundamentals I agree. Here's, and we find very common agreement on these fundamentals. Where we have the differences mm -hmm. of opinion and the differences of players is really how we move our body to the right. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to the left, because we all talk about just letting it come back. You know, let, let's put it back where we started from, going to the left. Right. Okay? 
but we have a lot of conversation about what we do moving our body to the right. And we keep the club face closed, we let the toe up, you know, all these different things. So what I've always tried to do is make sure my students, uh, from the time I started, uh, really, is good grip, good stance, let's move your body to the right, we're going to move it to the left, and let's see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And which one of those other methods or fundamentals do you come the closest to? Do you keep your elbow in? Do you let it fly out? you rotate your arms going back? you don't? Which one of those fundamental right-hand movement methods do your natural body motions come close to? And when we've identified that, then that's what we try to use, that method. So I, I tend to think that I use four or five different to the right hand of the, you know, when I'm moving to the right, I use three or four different methods there depending on my students. So if you want to, to say that is a move from a methodology to a more individually minded, I agree. But I think most good instructors have done that for a long time. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that. I, I mean, I think that, I think in, with the introduction of biomechanics, for instance, we've seen you know, where they break down the swing and, and so forth. But again, there's some players that maybe don't move a certain way as, you know, player A and player B might be slightly different. But again, those right. core fundamentals are, are consistent throughout all of those different methods. You're exactly right. I mean, there, you know, how, and it, it goes to what we, we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you know, when I suggested about players like um, uh, Lee Trevino and so forth. They all had core fundamentals that were all the same from one another, but how they arrived there or, or how the process for them to go through the motions were, were in some cases, vastly different. Um, so I, I think you're exactly Certainly. right. I think you have to look at the individual player. Uh, certainly, again, as you said, good grip, good stance, and you know, posture and so forth. But how they get from, and I'm going to say point A to point B, and that means moving to the right and then moving back through the left, um, right. they may have a different method than the next person. But as long as they're getting, again, going back to the results, as long as they're getting the desired result, it doesn't really matter how they get there um, for the most part. I mean, there's obviously some exceptions, but, again, whether their elbow's tucked or, or their you know, arm in the side or not, right. Uh, right. because we've seen so many variations over the years. Um, so I want to move on because we're, we're getting, funny sure. enough, we're getting close oh, yeah. to our time. But um, I'm with you. I want to ask you this. Do you feel that it's important to have a broad approach to coaching slash teaching, uh, and, and I'll give you an example in a minute, uh, or stick with one specific area and become really good at it. So, for instance, um, even though I know you teach all aspects of the game, you've talked right. about a lot in the show how you really focus on that third shot and certain short game right. fundamentals. You really talk about that. Do you think as a coach or as a teaching professional, um, and again, everybody's different, um, what is your preference? Do you feel that it's better for you to focus on a specific area of the game? That doesn't mean you don't teach other aspects, but to really dial right. in and become really good at, at, at relaying that information to your students, uh, or do you think it's more advantageous to sort of be well-rounded? Can we sometimes spread ourselves too thin, in other words? Oh, I, I, I'm going to be in the camp of that, you know, I think I'm a pretty good instructor, from the mm -hmm. tee box to the green. Um, right. But I think where I give my students the best is from 20 yards to the hole. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm the best. And that's where I think I can give my students the most. 
Now, it really depends. I think we all should be well-rounded. You know, we, if you're going to be a PGA uh, instructor or a certified instructor or guy for a teacher, you need to understand fundamentally from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that we all have preferences. That's, that's you know, we, we prefer to play golf versus tennis. We all have preferences. And so, therefore, I feel like what I'm the best at is the short game. I think I can communicate the things that need to be done there better than I do for the full swing. Now, I have colleagues of mine that, that I would give my child, a, hey, you need to go talk to this guy here about how to hit a driver or make a full swing because he's better at it than I am. When you get right. that done, come back over here, and I'll take care of this other part. And so I think that the question comes around, yeah, you need to be fully rounded in knowing how to play the game. But I think it's just human nature to want to specialize and to be, right. and, you know, you know, it's just human nature, I think, and and I, I think that's what most of our instructors should be. Now, some people take that to the specialization to a really higher level, that that's what they do, and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. But you see that mostly in more the the tour players, the top end college players. You know, you see that in that elite group of players. But generally, the average player out here just really needs a good, well rounded instructor. Uh, to work through their 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 ups and downs. Okay. Yeah. The, so the the reason why yeah the reason why I asked you that question and, and again this is not a, a I want to preface this because yeah, I know there's going to be some other other pros that are listening uh, to the show and I don't want to be stepping on anybody's toes but one of the problems no. that I see and I see this more often with particularly um, younger instructors for instance wanting to. Uh, go out and get certified in a variety of different things uh, from golf fitness to what, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder if, you know, again, I use the term spreading yourself too thin. I think I agree with exactly what you said. I think you have to be well-rounded. You have to, in the golf swing and, and so forth. But again, if you want to specialize in certain aspects, that's fine too. Um, but I see a lot, and the reason why I say this, because you go on, obviously, social media, and I see people all the time talking about various different certifications that they get. And again, I'm not saying this as a criticism, but I'm just wondering if they're, you know, and I, I understand it's a competitive business and that, and you're trying to sort of differentiate yourself, but I'm wondering if some of them are spending so much time in so many, in trying to, you know, to learn so many different approaches to the game or adding things to the repertoire, which is good in some ways, but they're not really mastering anything. And I wonder if, if in, in retrospect, if we're really doing a disservice to our students because, again, it's good to have general knowledge, but I think if you're trying to get too much going on on your plate, how are you really able to dial in and help your student? Because I like what you said earlier where you, know, you might specialize in, in this area over here, but you've got some associates that maybe are a little better at something over here, and you're going to encourage them to go and, and work out that with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is I wonder sometimes if people oh, yeah, are can... spending so much time. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? <laughs> oh, a- absolutely. There's no question about it. I said, you know, I do have a general knowledge that you should be physically fit, but I'm not the person to come talk to about it. You know, right. you, you need to find a, you know, uh, somebody, a personal trainer. There's some really good sites, one that I don't want, uh, you know, uh, push them, but right. it's called Par 4 Success. They're really good at what they do. They're physical therapists. They have some great stuff out there. Um, 
And but you're you're right. I mean, I you know, in today's world, we go to see our family doctor, and all they do is they check your blood pressure, check your weight, and then they send you to a specialist. Right. You know, and so everything is moving towards that specialty uh, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But you can't be a specialist in a half a dozen different things. That you was my pick. point. Yeah, I know that's what I'm getting I, and at. I'm agreeing with yeah. you. You got to pick. Yeah, you, you got to pick something I, to be really good at. You know. I worry about Go it ahead. because I see a lot of times. No, I just want to inject this real quick because, like I said, we're getting close. Um, but sure. I see this too often where, you know, it's like a doctor that has 15 initials after their name. You know, they're a specialist in every area of medicine. And I see the same thing I'm starting to see and have for a number of years now in golf. We're seeing, you know, people that are, you know, proposing to be golf psychologists. Now they're getting into the fitness side. Now they're getting into this. And they're doing about five or six different things. And I'm not saying that they're not good at at, at them, but you cannot be good at all of them um, in, a, in, a, in my opinion, in a responsible way. And I know that sounds like I'm, you know, kind of going after them. But I think you have to you have to look at um, things realistically. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't be uh, you know adversed in in certain areas. I think you should be knowledgeable about it. But I don't think you should necessarily go have to go out and be certified in 15 different you know, genres in order to be considered a good instructor. Because if I'm coming well, look, to you for the short of, game, yeah. right? And you said earlier, you said, okay, well I'm not the person to come to for for golf fitness, um, but you've got the right. certification. You know, it, it may not end up serving me well. So I would rather you defer yeah. me to a specialist that does specialize in that and be honest about it. That's that's what I'm getting at. I just see right. too much of that happening, uh, and and it's just you know spending a lot of money for nothing. I think in in many cases. I think that's what's really driving it. Yeah, what's really driving that is a resume. I want to have mm-hmm. all sure. this. I'm certified this, certified that, certified that. Ladder and, and hub or a more populated area to drive my business, those things just look good on a resume. And the rest of it is common sense. I know if I went to got a specialist in medical that had was a dentist and then he was a urologist and all, I, I'm going, which one of these, <laughs> who am I going to see? You know, right. So it's you're right, and and that typically tends to to work its way out through the through time. And uh, mm-hmm. they they eventually have all those letters. They are, if they're honest with themselves, you know they're better than the other. And that's what they're going to kind of gravitate to in the long run anyway. So just let it play right. out. I agree. Um, final thought here. Um, given what you know now, after all of these years, what, if anything, would you do differently? If you And I'm, I'm not oh, talking about changing careers. Or I'm talking about... Yeah, I'm just saying generally. I, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, so you have to keep it short. But I know. Uh, generally, oh, I'm what would you, you do different? Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I would do anything different, but I would look back. Every student I taught from 1980 to 2000 and do it all over. Because <laughs> I'm so much better of an instructor now than I was then, you know? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Help me learn how to that that whole thing. I mean, you know, we went through a lot of range balls over the time, and and I I just would really love to go back 
And I know many of them are probably either not with us anymore or don't play golf. But I've always thought mm-hmm. it would be nice to go back in time and correct myself on how right. I was trying to communicate. Not necessarily change what I was trying to get them to do, but I think right. I have learned through this show, matter of fact, and a lot of other colleagues, Mike Lawrence and Todd Ellison and Joey Herbert, all my friends that are golf pros, that we've all learned from each other over the last 20 years that you wish you right. could go back and communicate that with those folks now. So there is no question that would be my only regret uh, in, in what <laughs> I've done in my career, without a doubt. I'd love to go back and give them one more try, you know. I think that would be a very common uh, answer and response yeah, from, from just about That's anybody. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, you're right because, again, you know, I look back, you know, one of my uh, areas of, of expertise in, in life was I was always involved in sales in some aspect. Um, and I look at my earlier sales days compared to, you know, a little bit later on in life. And, you know, I look at my approach, how I handled things, and I was focused too much on one area what really was not as important as as another area, and you know, in high, it's that old saying in hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, but right. I, I agree with you. I think if if I could go back as well, there are situations, many situations, where I would probably have gone in a different direction or tried a different approach to it. But again, that's part of the learning pro- process and you know uh, right. reflection. That's one of the beautiful things that you know uh, in this world we have is is the ability to, to reflect. Um, and I think that's what we have to do. Yeah. But um, but uh, I, I know I have no doubt, Clint, from the many years that you've been on this show, that uh, uh, regardless, even in the early days, I think you were a good instructor. You're obviously very honest and a, <laughs> uh, a, a gentleman of integrity. And, and I look at it this way. When you first came on the show, uh, you were in the very – uh, back of the bus, and, and now you've moved your way up to the <laughs> no. front. So I think you, you've earned. No. You've I'm earned. Thinking, uh, I'm thinking yeah, I'll be you, driving it by now. But <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah. we're not quite there yet. No. Maybe if I retire, oh, I I'll let you drive the bus. But <laughs> no, I, I but do no. not want to drive this bus. We haven't. So, I've had so much fun. And the one other <laughs> thing that, that that you know, wisdom is wasted on the the old, I guess. Um, yeah. But just thank more people as you go. Yep, that's the regret that you don't thank the people that help you get where you're at. You thank them as you go. Don't regret not saying thank you. And that's uh that's part of that thing. I always wanted to go back with those early students and thank them for letting me learn uh, with yep. their time and their money. You know, so it works out well. But well, no. well, and that's the key thing is you learn from your students as you pointed out earlier as much as they learn from you. And that's true. And if you're not, then you're not doing something right. If you're not learning from them then you've made it all about right. you and not really about helping and, and serving them. So well said. All right, right my friend, uh, just a, a quick, um, if you want to share how the sure. folks can reach out, if yeah. they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way yes. to do that, and then I'll let you go. Yeah, no problem. Ted, it's, it's been great. And, again, I hope John and everybody down there is doing well, but uh, it'll take a little time to recover. But they can get me at clintgoff one at yahoo.com, and I respond to the emails and uh, – and I look forward to hearing from folks and see what we can do in the future. I, uh, I know we're getting pretty close to the end of the end of the season, so we'll yep. um, hopefully everybody will have a good end of the year. And I know we've got the hurricane headed up this way, but I think we're going to kind of bounce around it. But hopefully everybody in Florida will be doing well shortly. Sounds good. 
Clint, as always, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Coach's Corner. As always, did a fantastic job, and I look forward to the next time. Have a great weekend and stay safe. Good night, safe. Buddy. Good right, night. Bye. All right, Clint Wright, uh, join me on the Coach's Corner panel. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to be back with my very good friend, Mr. Byron Casper. I'll tell you a little bit about him when I return. Be right back. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back, everybody. And uh, very excited, to, as always, to have uh, my next uh, guest join me. Uh, we've become very good friends over the years and uh, always enjoy having him uh, on the show. He's always got some interesting stuff to share, so we're going to jump right into it here in just a moment. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Byron Casper. He's uh, uh, one of the Golf Tips Magazine's actually top 25 instructors as well as a senior sports writer, uh, entrepreneur, and an international PGA member. And, of course, he's the son of golfing legend uh, Billy Casper. Um, he's going to join me. We're going to talk about a few different things here, but uh, please welcome my very special guest and good friend, Mr. Byron Casper. Good evening, Byron. Welcome. Good evening, Chad, and thank you for uh, having me on your show again. Well, I appreciate it. I think I think you've officially been on more times than any other guest on my show. <laughs> if I was go back and I know you hadn't been on for a little while, but you've been busy, so um, you're forgiven. But, uh, yeah, I think you've been on more. As, as an individual guest, I think you've been on more. Now, Coach's Corner panel is a little bit different because that's something that's a, a little bit more regular each month. But um, I think as far as the actual individual guest, I think you've been on more than anybody else uh, over the years. But uh, And uh, there's been a oh, few gosh, contenders. I feel, but I, I think feel you... honored. <laughs> well, I feel honored. I'm just glad you keep coming back. So, um but thank you for joining me, and, and I appreciate it. Now, you were playing – we texted a little bit. I wanted to make sure because I know you're in a different time zone, so I want to make sure you had the, the timing right. So you were playing in a tournament today, correct? Yeah, I uh, was playing in a charity event with my golf simulator uh, business partner down in Kingman, Arizona. And it, uh, it was a great event. Uh, raised over hundred grand for um, a couple of charities and uh, mm-hmm. finished, I think – we would have finished in second, funny enough, but we lost in the uh, scorecard playoff. So you know how it works. We had a, a birdie, yeah. and they had a, an eagle. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, it happens uh, to the best. Yeah, but, it, does, um, it, it does happen. But, you know, it's all about – that's one of the beauties of golf, as you know, Ted, and that is my father and mother with the Billy Casper Youth Foundation have used that as a um, – uh, I suppose a template for raising funds for children, and you know that's one of the beauties of, of our sport is that mm-hmm. golf is used for as much charity um, or charitable events as any other two or three sports combined together. When it comes to yeah. going out and playing and doing these charity events, and so I really try to be supportive of them, um, as I think all golfers should. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I believe it was last week. 
um, I had referenced that very same thing in, uh, in, in a discussion with, with the guest last week and talked about how several years ago I had a, de- a guest on who actually wrote a book about all of the different charity golf uh, tournaments, you know, both big and small uh, here in the United States. And, you know, I mean, there's thousands, as you can imagine. He said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the same thing. He said, uh, you know, more than baseball, football, basketball combined, golf raises more funds than any other uh, group out there, you know, for charities and, and, and goodwill and, and so forth. And, and I think obviously it's, you know, certainly when you're talking about other sports and that, um, it's a little bit different, you know, you've got more involved. But, um, you know, with golf, anybody at any level can put together a golf tournament, raise funds, and it might be as little as, you know, $1,000 they might raise to several millions, uh, uh, you know, that happens uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's in the billions. It's, you know, it's not just a hundred, you know, a few hundred thousand or a few million. It's in the billions that get raised every year. So you're right. It's, it's not even close. Uh, I want to talk to and, and feel free to expand or not expand whatever you want. But, you know, we talked recently uh, on, a, on a phone conversation. You mentioned about uh, you had headed back uh, over to Scotland, uh, of course, the, the home of golf. Um, and I imagine there was a little personal and probably some business and a bit of both. Tell us a little bit about your visit. I mean, you don't have to get into specifics. There may be some things that you can't share, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, for those that maybe have never been there, um, I'm assuming you probably got a chance to play a little bit over there. And if not this time, you've obviously played a lot over the years. And, of course, you worked over in Scotland uh, during the 90s uh, before you came back to the United States. But for those that have never been over there, give us a, a, an idea of what it's like um, and the vast difference in uh, the golf courses typically, I mean, we're getting some similar courses here now, but typically uh, for somebody that plays over there compared to how we typically play here in the United States, what are some of the differences that uh, yeah, people might you know, find? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, I think that's a great, great, great question, um, Ted. Interestingly enough, when I went over to Scotland for the first time, um, and I was recently married, um, I believe it was 90, 95, 96, And at that point, I had just graduated from the Golf Academy of America when I was at Whispering Palms in Del Mar. And my game was great, but I had a very typical American style uh, play of hitting a lot of shots very high. And Mm -hmm. um, moving to Scotland was really just flipping my entire game and the way that I understood the game of golf on its head. And partially it was because I got to teach people over there as the head pro for Heritage Heritage Golf and then the St. Andrews Golf Company in St. Andrews. But it really is the style of play. Most courses in Scotland, and there are Parkland courses, but most courses in Scotland are link-style courses. And in link-style courses, you have extremely thick rough that the Scots call gorse, G-O-R-S-E, the gorse. And... Getting out of that is a feat in itself. And then on top of that, you know, they do a lot with grass bunkers and really leave the um, fairway sand bunkers alone except for at the areas where you will hit your drive. And so Mm -hmm. understanding what to hit off the tee box is incredibly important. I would say twice as important as playing a Parkland course here in America. Um, And then the other real big factor is that you're bouncing a lot of shots onto the green. So if you try to fly a shot into a green, 
uh, let's say, at the old course um, or even the new course in St. Andrews, you're not going to stop it on the green. You have to really play it a good, I'd say, 8 to 12 yards in front of the green and let it bounce on up if you want to get close to the hole. And so there's, right. you know, there's factors about that. You also tend to keep the ball a little lower playing, um, you know, golf over there because of the wind. Um, I played – so when I was there, I was there for uh, nine days and played uh, seven rounds of golf, played the old course twice. And I kid you not, Ted, and, and anybody that's been to Scotland will appreciate this, and that is it rained seven days that we played right. golf in, at, in one form or another. And so you've got to be comfortable in wind. You've got to be comfortable being a little wet. Um, you've got to be comfortable being able to change up your game a little bit and play the, sh- the shots that you need as opposed to the shots you think you would play in America. And then, you know, combining mm-hmm. that and the golf history, um, St. Andrews, arguably the oldest um, uh, golf area, uh, in the world, and I know there's, you know, I, that's why I say arguably because I know there's a few others that are equally as important. But my experience living in Scotland for almost 14 years of my life and playing golf over there is get ready for an incredible experience when you decide to go, change up your golf game a little bit, hit the ball a little lower, bounce things on up the green, pay close attention to what you hit off the tee box, meaning you may end up hitting hybrids even if or a three-wood, even if you don't think you can get there with your second shot, purely and simply to stay out of some of those bunkers that are down right. in that landing you know, landing area. And then on top of that, you've got the drink, you've got the incredible food, you've got castles and palaces and ruins, literally, you know, every mile, every couple miles. And so if you like history and you love the history of golf and just history itself, I would say absolutely make a Scottish trip on your bucket list. And by the way, I'm yeah, not and, being and paid it, by the Tourist Association. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, the reason why I bring that up, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, folks that have gone over on, on golf junkets and whatnot, so they're familiar with it. But a lot of people aren't. They don't understand it. You know, they again, you talk the sort of the Parkland courses here. You know, you look at something like a Pinehurst where it's very tree-lined. Well, that's not the case over there. I mean, over there it's very open. It's, uh, you know, fairways run alongside one another. Uh, some of them are, are joined and whatnot um, between the holes. And you don't have – so the wind becomes a big factor in a lot of those uh, link-style courses. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm well, and, understating and also, it, obviously. And think, and think about the links. Well, think about the links courses as well. You know, there's, I mean, there's links courses all over the country, right? But all over Scotland. But the best links courses, the most famous links courses, are the ones that are pretty close to the water. Right. And you know, think of Muirfield. Think of the old course. Think of Carnoustie. Um, think of Turnberry. You know, I mean, there's the, the great courses over there are really close to water, and what happens when you're next to a sea um, or an ocean, you get a lot of wind. And so that really comes into it. And I liked your point about the, not having very many trees, because you're right, there right. is not a lot of wind barriers when you're playing golf in Scotland. Right, and and hence why you want to keep it low, because, you, you know, if you've got the breeze coming off, uh, you know, from the water, um, and you're hitting a high shot like you might hear, um, the wind's just going to carry it, and you know you're going to find yourself in trouble. Um, it, it's very, 
you know, there's a lot of strategy in playing a course such as that. Uh, I'm not saying there isn't strategy here, but it's different. And it's a uniquely different. So if, uh, there are certainly some similar link style courses here in the United States. And if you find yourself traveling, you may want to research some online and uh, find out yeah. uh, some of them. But uh, and, and get a chance to go and play those before you, you head over. And, and it, it is a definitely uh, unique experience um, to do that. It's, uh, again, it, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but it gives you a similar idea of what to expect when you go over there. So it's a good idea if, you're, if you like to travel to do that before you head over. Uh, I want well, to shift on it. Well, I ahead. have to say one other thing, Chad. Sorry to interrupt you, buddy, but I, um, I do have to say this. And I, um, as you know, I've been recovering from a couple of surgeries, and this was a big deal to me to be able to go uh, play for a little over a week in Scotland, prim- primarily because of the amount of walking that you do. And so, you know, right. our, our listeners or your listeners really need to be aware that we used a cart on one of the rounds. So out of seven rounds, we used a cart on the last day. Um, everything else was caddies and walking. And believe it or not, thanks to my watch, I was able to track everything. And my business partner, Dean Ryder, and myself, we walked 73.1 miles Hmm. in eight days uh, of golf and travel. And so make sure that if you're going to Scotland to play golf, that you spend a little time walking golf courses here to get your legs ready for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and and that's one of the. I know when I played up at Pinehurst, uh, a very similar experience. I mean, obviously not link style. Um, you know, I hadn't done that in a little while because we're so used to here in, in America, uh, many of the courses for for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, you're a lot of them for a long time. They're starting to change now, but for a long time pushed you into um, you know carts. In fact, some of them won't allow you to go out in the course unless you're in a cart. So you get kind of yeah. I hate to say it, we get a little bit lazy. So, you know, it was interesting. Fortunately, you know, I've kept myself in pretty decent shape, but, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit of a challenge uh, those few days in, in Pinehurst walking the course because I hadn't done that in yeah. a while. And fortunately, it's very flat <laughs> for the most part, so it wasn't too bad, not very uh, hilly on the courses I played. But uh, it was definitely a challenge when you're not used to doing that all the time. So uh, that's a great point as well. Um Byron, the last oh, I, time you I were on, say, I felt like a mountain goat yeah, go playing Glen Eagles. We played, oh, yeah. we played Glen Eagles uh, <laughs> twice, and uh, I, I have to say that my favorite course at Glen Eagles, um, now that I've played it, is the Centenary, centenary um, course where they held the Ryder Cup and the Solheim, and um, that course is just amazing and stupendous. But the Kings course at Glen Eagles. I, I kid you not, don't play it unless you literally have some mountain goat blood in you uh, because right. it is the hilliest course I have ever played uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world, the hilliest course, and, um, but absolutely worth it. And so all I can say, Ted, is Scotland is worth the trip. It's worth the distance. And quite frankly, it's worth saving up however long it takes you, whether it's a year or five years, um, Make an effort to go there to experience golf the way it really, truly started. Right. It, it, it's something definitely it, it should be, I think, in every golfer's bucket list. Uh, I think even if it's only one time in your life, I agree. I think you need to make it on your, on your bucket list, you know, put a, a group together and, and head over and have a, a really good time playing some, some different style of golf than maybe what you're used to. 
um, and go over and obviously there's some good food and, and drink available and a lot of great sites to take in as well. So I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what I was starting to say was, you know, last time you were on, you had talked about uh, the launch of the new Billy Casper School of Golf. Um, you were obviously really excited about that, you and your team. And I want to talk about uh, a little bit about that, um, give us maybe an update on, on how things are going. But I wanted to also talk about specifically about golf lessons as well. So if you want to give us an update gen generally how things are going uh, with that, that, that new uh, uh, addition, if you will, to everything else that you're doing, uh, if you want to give us an update on, on how things are going there. And then I want to dial into some specific things that you guys actually offer uh, as well. Um, so, so go ahead. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. We've taken pretty much the longest I've ever taken to, uh, on an R&D uh, project to really research um, as a golf pro, but also research with my friends that are golfers as to what golfers need in order to help them get better um, and get better faster and do it without having to really mess about with a whole lot of different things in their swings uh, most people swing the way that their bodies want them to, and with a little bit of instruction um, from their PGA pros or international PGA pros, uh, they're going to be just fine. But it's that constant reassurance that us as golf pro, pros, Ted, as you know, um, mm -hmm. we get that at our level, but amateur golfers don't get that reinforcement, that constant reinforcement that what they're doing is great or what they're doing is wrong so that they can immediately fix it, Right. So right. one of the, our concepts with the Casper Golf app that's coming out and the Billy Casper School of Golf is we had to figure out a way to not just help a couple hundred people, but figure out a way to help thousands upon thousands of people because that's really why Dad and I started the Billy Casper right. Golf Schools. The reason we started them in the first place was because my dad said he wanted to offer golfers the opportunity to get better at a better rate than they were paying for top-level instruction. And he really felt that the game of golf was already expensive. So if you're going to go do something like play a round of golf, why not have a few tools in your bag to help you enjoy it more, just understanding your swing a little bit better. And so through the Billy Casper School of Golf and our new golf app coming out, for the first time, we're going to be able to have a massive digital presence. We have partners that I can't mention just yet, but we have seven different partners in the world of golf that have products and services that golfers already love. And we're combining that with basic and in-depth tuition, depending on what the student is looking for. And we're doing it all digitally. So we're going to have be able to do things like clinics for a thousand golfers all over the world and have a mediator that can take questions and get instant lessons, instant feedback. An example would be somebody having an over-the-top swing and not knowing how to control it. Well, you and I know very quickly how to control that. You control that by controlling the right arm and, the, and basically your armpit on the right side, right? So, right. But, but too many people don't know that. I mean, to you and I, Ted, that's very simple, basic golf mechanics. But so many people mm -hmm. don't understand that. And because they don't understand that, 
why not give them the ability to not only learn that, but never have to take the same lesson twice? Right. Saves them money, helps them to enjoy the game more, gets more people on the golf courses, which is what we need for our industry. And that's the way that we keep not only golf alive, but change that terrible handicap, that average handicap of 15 or 16 that's been around for 50-plus years and get that down to 11 or 12. So Mm -hmm. by doing it digitally and having literally a team of 25 different youngsters, and I say youngsters because I think my oldest, oldest team member doing the software and the app projects um, is probably 36. So they are youngsters to, to me in my 50s and you, Chad, but <laughs> right. they understand things the way that we don't. And they can take all of right. the knowledge that I, I have from my education, from traveling the world, from teaching in, in three countries, and from working directly with my, my father, and they know how to take all of that and get that to the masses. And so we're going to be launching that sometime in the next three or four weeks, both on the Android and the Apple Store. And I urge all of our listeners or your listeners, Ted, that if they go on to billycasper.com and sign up, not only will they get up-to-date weekly newsletters giving them the exact launch date, but there's also going to be some incentives and some great ways to save money. So, again, I just urge everybody to go to billycasper.com, sign up. The box pops right up when you go there. Get your name on there, and not only will you find out more about what we're doing, uh, but you'll also save some money and get some great incentive deals. Yeah, and that's really what people are looking for. People are looking for, um, you know, value for for their money. And, and you're exactly right in what you said. You know, for a long time, you know, golf has always been looked at as a very expensive, very elitist uh, sport. Uh, and, and there was a time when really that that was truthful. But nowadays, you know, we're seeing you know advancements of the game and changes in the game where they're trying to make it more um, uh, you know accessible all the way around. And that's really what exactly. you're trying to do through 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 your uh, ventures. And that is really to take what you know you've learned not only yourself but through your uh, you know, teachings with, with your father um, over the years and, and his um, approaches to the game. And, and now you've got a team that's sort of watering that down. And I say watering uh, in, in putting it in such a way that it's accessible uh, at, at the, you know, basically a touch of a, of a button. Um, and, and that's what people are looking for. People are looking for ease of access to things. And I think one of the things a lot of people ask um, you know, first and foremost, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is why should someone take a golf lesson? I mean, we know the answers from our perspective, but really, you know, you really touched on it is, is really we want to give them, you know, if you're going to do a job, um, you need certain tools to, to perform that job, whether you're doing it as a profession or whether you're just doing it as fun. Um, so why should somebody take a, a golf lesson? What are the benefits Well, I think that that every now and then you come across somebody who is incredibly athletic, and I've I've got three students right now that um, are are all between 14 and 18, and every single one of them are just some of the most athletic kids that I've ever seen. But generally speaking, we all have to learn, and even these kids 
at, and I'm talking about 14 to 17-year-olds that are already plus one or two, Ted. Like, right. that's how good these, these, these kids are. And yet they still come in once a month or once every six weeks to tighten up their game. And I use the word tighten up their game because at that level, they need to make sure that they are mechanically perfect for their body and their Mm -hmm. swing. And you know as well as I do, it's very hard sometimes to do that yourself, which is why we have other people look at it, which takes me to my second point as to why everybody needs to have at least one to three lessons, and that is you need somebody else's perspective on what you are doing. And if you can get somebody else's perspective, golf pro, obviously, but but a golf pro's Mm -hmm. perspective, and you listen to them, you're going to learn more than you will ever learn standing beating balls on the driving range. And then that brings me to my third point, and that is I know there's listeners right now that go and buy a large bucket and will hit 80 balls, 80 to 100 balls in 30 minutes and consider that practice. And I'm here to say that that's not practice. That's beating balls, and that's Mm -hmm. not practicing what you need to do on the golf course. In order to practice, you should take 30 balls and take 20 to 25 minutes to hit them where you're practicing the same repetitive motion every single time. Mm -hmm. And again, you can't really do that on your own. So by having a golf pro look at your swing, give you some pointers, give you a video or two, and then send you on your way to practice, that's why people need to take golf lessons. But I I have to point out something, and I I mentioned this just yesterday uh, or two days ago in a lesson. And that is, I can only do so much. I can show you exactly what you need to do. But if mm-hmm. you don't at least spend half an hour to an hour a week on the range, then you are not ever going to get better. And so you can take a golf lesson every week, but if you don't practice that, you're not going to get better. And so what I like to say is take less golf lessons and practice more. If you do that, your game is going to improve, you're going to enjoy your time on the course, and you're not going to to fall into that bad habit where you're buying a new driver every three years and taking a golf lesson every month, and you're still the unhappiest golfer on the planet because you're not enjoying it. Yeah, too too many people think that uh, they can buy their game um, through equipment or, or what have you or taking repetitive lessons but then don't want to do the work in between. And I, and I think, you know, you didn't use this exact word, but essentially you're saying the same thing, is you, when you're practicing, you want to practice with purpose. You want to make sure that you're doing Absolutely. something that is, is going to be repetitive um, and that is going to give you, obviously, feedback that you need. Um, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing once in a while if you just want to go up, you know, if you've been playing pretty good and you just want to go up and hit some balls, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're, if you're truly wanting to become a better player, you're exactly right. You know, you have to take what you've been taught in the lesson and you have to utilize those drills and, and whatever else that you may have discovered and go out to the practice range and work on those things that, that you've been given uh, in, in, your, in your recent lesson 
And you've got to do that before you go and take another lesson because what often happens, and I'm, I guarantee you've, you've seen this, I'm, I know you try to discourage it, but um, where you'll get somebody to come in one week for a lesson, maybe it's a few weeks later they come back, they've done absolutely no practice, they've done nothing, and they come back, and what they're doing is you're spending the first little bit of, the, of that lesson going over stuff from the previous lesson because they've forgotten things, they haven't really practiced it, so now you're trying to get them back up to speed again, and a lot of times you end up wasting valuable time rehashing something because they chose not to practice with a purpose and get out there and work on some of the things that you taught. So it becomes, um, for the golf pro, I think, and, and I think you would concur, uh, very frustrating because you feel like you're, you're, it's falling on deaf ears. And Well, yeah, I, I like, absolutely. I think, right. that, I think you're right. You know, I like what you said is I would rather them take, you know, 25, maybe 30 golf balls and, and go out for that 25 minutes than 80 golf balls and, you know, rapid fire in 30 minutes um, and, and practicing with a purpose than just banging ball after ball. And also one more thing, and I want to let you speak yeah. again, is you also want to get them going out on the golf course and, and putting what they've learned into practice as well, not just on the on the practice tee, but you want them playing as well because, you know, you don't want them to become a range rat all the time either where they're just out hitting balls in the range, but they're not actually putting it together and becoming a better player. So there's a lot of different things that go into it, but you're exactly right is in your analogy is you, you, want, to, you want your time to be constructive and you want it to be obviously informative and you want it to be productive. Uh, and I think that's what you're trying to do at the Billy Casper uh, Golf Schools, correct? Yeah, hundred you know, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that, I, again, I, I was very, very, very fortunate to have a, a famous professional golfing father, and so, so I got to watch different things that I'm sure a lot of golfers didn't really have the opportunity to watch unless they were watching people like my dad on the PGA Tour or on TV. So things like routine became extremely important. And I'll give you a quick example, um, and maybe even we can call this a little extra golf tip in, in tonight's show. But um, today warming up on the range, I, and I, don't, I, I do what my dad did. I warm up with 12 balls. I don't need any more than that. Uh, I'm certainly not out on the range to work on anything on my game when I'm playing in a tournament. Um, I'm just mm -hmm. there to loosen up and um, and get, you know, the body functioning and, and feeling good. And as I went through the 12 balls, I stopped when I had two left after I'd hit a couple drives. And my playing partner said, oh, okay, let's go. And I said, nope, hold on, got to hit a couple wedge shots. And he's like, well, why are you hitting wedges? Just hit your driver. I'm like, because I'm simulating what I'm going to be doing on the golf course all day long. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's like, oh, my gosh, I've never thought about that before. And and that's just a simple, little simple example of practicing with a purpose and making sure that you are simulating the shots on the driving range that you will be using on the golf course. And so something like that may seem very small, like very, very small. But doing that day in and day out, or every time you go to the golf course and go to the range, it becomes a habit. And habits are the way that we quiet our minds so that we can get busy playing good golf. And that's, you know, again, 
I was fortunate because I was able to see these things from uh, a son watching his father. And my dad was very hands-on. You've heard me talk mm-hmm. about him before, Ted, but he was a very yep. hands-on father. In fact, I always use the example that when I went to the Ryder Cup as a 10-year-old boy, when my father was, was, was captain, I was shocked because I didn't know he was famous. I had no mm-hmm. idea, zero. And I always say that how amazing is it that somebody at that level was such a good parent that his kids didn't even realize that he was famous. They just thought he was a regular guy. And that's the sort of hands-on experiences that I had. Now, the other thing I, I will say that Dad taught me, which really helps, but I don't urge people to do this unless they go out at the very end of the day. And it's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why you'll see me on the golf course at 5, 5.30 p.m. a couple times a week. And that is, Dad taught me from a very early age that hitting balls on the range is great. It's great for mechanics, but it's not great for the playability of the game. The mm-hmm. best thing you can do to understand your game is to go out at the end of the day. Be the, the very last group off and go out and hit four or five shots on a few of the holes from a few different positions and practice the shots that you're going to be hitting. Don't go out and try to shoot a low score. Go out with the sole purpose that it is a practice for the next time you're going to play golf. And if you do those couple things, your game is going to absolutely improve because you're going to learn more about what you're able to do and what you're not able to do, therefore making better decisions on the golf course. Yeah, because it, it, you're 100% right, and that's a, that's a great thing for, for somebody that truly wants to, to become a better player. Um, because what we often see, and again, you have to sort of, it's a combination of things. You have to certainly go onto the range, and you have to work out on, on, on different things and uh, you know, work on your fundamentals and so forth. Uh, but the truth of the matter is you also have to simulate course conditions. And it's very difficult to do. Now, some ranges, depending on what they are, uh, have the ability to give you some, not all, but some situations. For instance, one of the ranges that I go up to uh, has, at the end of each side, uh, has some slope. So you can, you know, practice, uh, depending on which side you're on, you can practice, uh, you know, fall below your feet, uh, that sort of thing. So you get some, uh, or some uneven lies. A lot of times, I remember my father used to do, um, was he would actually, when we would go to the range, he would find a uh, an area um, where it was nothing but divots. And he would mm-hmm. put my ball in a divot. Uh, he'd put it at the back of the divot, in the front of the divot, and right in the middle of the divot, and he'd say, okay, I want you to hit that shot. Because, again, you're not always going to be faced with a perfect lie uh, during your round. Um, so he would do the same thing. And I remember when I was really young, he took me to a par 3 executive course. We did something very similar, went out later in the day or when it was less busy, and he would do the same thing. He'd take, you know, certainly didn't do a lot, but maybe uh, three balls he would take out, and he would, we would just play a few holes, nothing, you know, no, nothing elaborate, yep. and he would just say, okay, I want you, I'm going to put the ball over here, and then I'm going to throw another one over here, and I want you to think about it. I want you to, you know, sort of evaluate the situation and, you know, pick the club you feel you need to do. Now, he would certainly correct me afterwards, but he would never say anything during it. He would let me do it myself. Um, he certainly talked to me before we went out and played and, and uh, through some of the lessons he gave me. Um, so very similar, I'm sure, to what your dad did. Um, and that's how I learned how to play. And, 
it, it has it has served me well over the years. And too often we see players going up and just raking and hitting, raking and hitting, and then they go out in the golf course and they're sitting and scratching their head, you know, a few holes later, thinking, well, what what happened? I was hitting the ball so well out in the driving range, now I can't hit anything. Or, you know, why is that yep. shot, you know, going low to the ground? Well, because the ball was below your feet. You didn't practice anything like that, or you never do. So you're exactly right. What were some other lessons that your dad taught you that's helped you um, in your game that might be beneficial to some of the listeners? Well, you know, I think I'm going to start from the, the, the one of the last things that he taught me um, about a little, little less than a year before he passed away. Um, and I, I was at that point when he was having some bad health, and I was really eager to ask him all the questions that I had been thinking about over the years that I figured I better start asking, you know? Right. And, um, and so one of the questions I asked him as a teaching professional to a golf professional or a professional golfer, um, I said, you know, dad, I said, what was it like walking up the 18th knowing that, all you had to do was sink a putt and go into a playoff and you were going to win a U.S. Open. I said, what, what was going through your mind? What did you do to relax and to calm your mind? And mm-hmm. in typical fashion, he cocks his head to me and looks at me like, what a silly question, and says <laughs> the following. Son, I just walked a little slower. And that was it. He walked a little slower and calmed his mind. That was it. Just mm-hmm. He just, instead of walking fast, he forced himself to walk slower, calming his body, and therefore calming his mind. And sometimes these simple truths are said at the right time in our lives to where they make a huge impact. And that made a really big impact with me because um, we all know when, when you go out and play in events and so forth, you know, we, you have to stay away from silly mistakes. And that's where I'm losing strokes is silly mistakes. And that's the big difference between people that are scratch or one or twos as, and people like my dad that had the absolute ability to calm themselves, to be repetitive, and to hit the shots that they had trained so well to hit. You know, that goes to really a, a, a even bigger point and and you know we've seen so many times over the years uh, at the professional level uh, a player who is you know leading the tournament and then they come into the final rounds and all of a sudden it's like the wheels fall off the bus and it's not that they suddenly forgot how to hit the golf shots but more often than not and I want to get your thoughts on this if you watch it you know we all have a sort of a natural rhythm uh, you know some players are kind of like a Freddie Couples or an Ernie Els, where they're a little bit, uh, and I don't want to mean they're slower, but they're the, a more relaxed pace of play. Then you see somebody like a, a Nick Price or whatever who has a, a very quick swing, very uh, you know quick. Uh, even even somebody like a Gary Player. And I think what you often see is that they sort of fall out of that natural cadence of their body. Their body rhythm changes. Um, you might see yep. a player that typically you know, might be like a, like a Freddie. I'm just using them as an example. Freddie Couples suddenly starts playing a little bit quicker. They're rushing through their pre-shot routine. They're rushing up the fairway. 
And I think your dad really raised a very interesting point, and that is he knew that now he's faced with a pressure shot, so adrenaline starts pumping, things like that. So he knew and had the wherewithal to slow himself down, in other words, to reset his cadence, so that when he got up there, yep. he was now back in that rhythm. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? I think it's uh, it's absolutely 100% accurate. And um, I would add to that that a little bit, you know, in my time with Golf Tech back in 2009, 10, and 10, um, when I opened up Golf Tech in Utah, we did a little bit with ratio work. But my dad was really the one that has spent more time than anybody else with me on tempo and timing. And the mm-hmm. interesting thing is, is everybody has a natural tempo and timing that their body works with. And so I've just started over the last five to 10 years, started calling it a ratio and Mm -hmm. explaining to people when I'm working with them that everybody has this certain timing that's going to work for them. Some people can swing and, and to use a music analogy, can swing in in one, one or one, two time where you've got Mm -hmm. some people that are swinging more to one, four, and um, and the one thing I will urge people is to be very aware that going too slow on the backswing is absolutely every bit as bad as going too fast. If you right. go too slow, you're giving your body too much time to think and get out of whack. Just like if you're going too mm-hmm. fast, you're not giving your body enough time to get into the right positioning. And so it really is worthwhile for everybody that plays this game of golf. If you haven't addressed your own personal tempo and timing and yes it is personal figure Mm -hmm. it out and once you figure it out stick with it every shot stick with it yeah and you can't change you know one of the things that we see and this is a i think a a real killer for a lot of golfers um you know it you know we all have our favorite golfer on tv that we watch and and we say, you know, boy, uh, I wish, you know, my swing was more like his or hers, depending on, you know, who you're you're talking to. And, you know, over the years we hear a lot of amateurs talk about, it. boy, I wish I could swing like so-and-so. Well, that's great, but if their rhythm is not the same as your rhythm, if you're trying to copy somebody's swing. Now, it, there's certain underlying fundamentals that are key um, in everybody's swing. Um, but whether you're uh, somebody like a Lee Trevino who had a very unorthodox swing compared to today's standards, uh, or you were somebody like an Adam Scott who's uh, very controlled and very um, mechanical in their swing, um, and, and of course there's all a myriad of players in between, but um, you know you have to find what works for you. And I see too often and have seen over the years where people try to emulate what they see on TV uh, they pick a favorite player, but it may not necessarily serve them well. So if you were talking to a brand-new golfer, somebody that's really not um, ever played before, doesn't really know much of the game, what would be the first thing that you would do? Obviously, you would want to you know, have a conversation with them and that and uh, you know, get some, some thoughts as to what, what they're really looking to do. But beyond that, what are, what are some of the first things that you're, steps that you're going to take with them um, as they begin their journey to becoming a golfer. Well, I, the, the, I appreciate you asking that. It's something that I, um, I I spend a lot of time not only doing but thinking about the, the best process 
um, mm-hmm. how to get people from point A to point C as quickly as possible uh, without messing too many things up in their natural movement or their natural swing. One of the first things I would do, Ted, would be, I, and I, I do this with almost every single person I work with, and that is I find out what other sports they've done. If not sports, I find out what other things they've done. Recently, I had a dancer. She'd never played sports in her life, but she spent a lot of time dancing and training a few times a week. And so I was able to talk to her about how important the core was in golf. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to also talk to her about how having a stability in your lower half so you can rotate around the top half, um, things like that that I could directly draw analogies with from her dancing. And so I always try to find something that the student has done in the past, even if it's just been for a year or two, and then I'll try to bring that into what they need to do with golf from a mechanical and a body position standpoint. And then I put a club in their hand, and I want to see them take some three-quarter to half swings. And then from there, I look at what's happening with their body, and I look at their natural movement. And nine times out of ten, it's a matter of showing them how to rotate their shoulders and making sure that their knees stay bent, uh, which is why I use, you know, the famous ball between the knees drill with a lot of my students because there's no better way of drawing attention to your knees than using that drill if you're struggling topping the ball and hitting a lot of thin shots. Um, I, you know, I even I, I started making these little balls with lanyards on them for some of my students, and I started, funny enough, with my girlfriend and made one for her because she comes up out of her knees a little bit um, right. sometimes. And so um, I made her one, then I've made a few other students them, that they can actually take to the range in order to focus on that lower body stability. So very much the same as dad. I like to see what I'm working with. I like to see what their body movement is naturally. I like to see the other sports that they've been involved in or things like dancing or anything that's active. And then from there, I work from the ground up. I make sure that they have a good platform, that their feet position, their knees and their hips are in the right position. And then I start working on the upper body rotation. Some of the common mistakes you see with better players, um, obviously there's a myriad of things that you can go into, but for some of the better players, the let's say the five handicap and below, um, you know, they're obviously for the most part striking the ball very well. What's common with some of the better players that you see? What some of the common mistakes? Uh, it's really, yeah, it's really two or three things. Um, one of the most common things is distance control. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, even good players that are fives, fours, really struggle with distance control when they get out of their comfort zone. So, yeah, I mean, it's fairly easy to know how far you're going to hit a 100-degree wedge, right? Mm-hmm. But what if you're 110? Or what if you're 96? That level of distance control is paramount to getting down to scratch. The second thing is is short game, 100% short game. You need to be able to have not only the ability, but you have to have the confidence to know that 80% of the time you're going to get up and down from anywhere around the green. 
And then I would say thirdly, I've worked with a couple really good players that have been playing on mini tours. Um, obviously, I won't mention names, but I have worked with right. two guys in particularly that are incredible ball strikers. And so long that, quite frankly, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach. Uh, I mean, these guys hit the ball three three forty, and um, and it looks like they're just swinging through butter. But the one problem they both had, which is why one is still playing professionally, one is not any longer, and that is putting. Too many golfers, and this includes good good players, don't spend the time that they need to putting and practicing mm-hmm. putting. And that's something when you get to the top level that dad was at and other players, those guys don't skip on any part of their game. And if you ask them, most of them will spend at least 50% of their time putting and practicing putting and chipping. And if you think about that and then compare that to your average 10 or 15 handicapper, I mean, Gosh, Ted, that's a big difference between the way that that those two people, those two different um, demographics, uh, practice. Yeah, I I can't begin. I I don't think I can count on one hand uh, the number of times in one practice session that I've seen uh, up and down the range how many uh, people that spend very little time working on their short game, particularly on the putting. They'll go and they'll hit ball after ball after balls, particularly as you pointed out earlier in your uh, comment with your partner there, um, you know, when you were uh, hitting those uh, last few shots with the wedge, um, curious as to why, you know, you hit your driver, that's all you need sort of thing. And I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, And you will not see them go over or they will go over for maybe a minute or two, hit a couple of putts, and that's it. Um, and I'm not talking about a warm-up session. That's entirely different, as you pointed out. I'm talking about a practice session. And I think part of it is because, let's be honest, hitting the driver, you know, for, for a golfer anyways, is, is kind of sexy. I mean, you're hitting, you know, you're belting this thing out, you know, a few hundred yards. It's taking a nice ball flight. You get on the putting surface, you're hitting some 10-foot, 15-foot putts. It's not all that exciting to some folks. So I get that. So how do we make it fun? What do we do to make it more interesting so that people will want to practice those parts of their game and not just hitting the, the big stick all the time. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just like every other golfer. I love hitting the big stick. Um, in fact, you would have been proud of me on 18 today, Ted. Um, <laughs> I actually hit, I had, I had a drive that was so long that even the 33 year old and 42 year old playing partners of mine uh, were uh, a little bit shocked and a little dismayed that, uh, 50-year-old dude outdrove them. But um, right. but anyway, no, it's, you know, it, it's, you have to make it fun. And, you know, I have to bring in my little brother, Charlie, uh, for this particular story because all of my memories growing up were, weren't really of playing much golf with dad. Dad was busy winning tournaments on the tour. It was with right. my little brother, Charlie. And we would compete against each other. And it didn't matter if we were in the backyard hitting shots over the fence and practicing flop shots and, and other things that we were going to use on the golf course. Or we were on a putting green practicing. We were absolutely reliving great moments in the game of golf. We would have putt-off contests where it was for a U.S. Open win. 
or we mm-hmm. would have putting contests where we were going to win the Masters. And practicing with somebody that has a competitive spirit is probably one of the best things that you can do to help your game. The other thing that really will help your game and make it fun is playing with people better than you. There's yes. nothing better than going out with somebody that you know is a little better than you that makes you step up and bring out your best. And so in order to, to make it fun, don't be afraid to play little putting games. Don't be afraid to have little chip-off contests with friends um, or challenge playing partners to, to little contests. You know, that's what this game of golf is about. It's not only about bettering ourselves, but it's about the camaraderie that exists between golfers. And I think that's what mm-hmm. makes our sport more special than any other, is that the camaraderie, both on the professional and top level, all the way down to the 25 handicappers, they all love this game. And they all have fun doing it. So as golf yeah, pros, we just need to make sure that they're enjoying it more because they're playing better. And that's really what my mission is with the Billy Casper School of Golf and the new Casper Golf app. Yeah, it's about making it fun, and it's about challenging them as an instructor, challenging your students um, to want to be better. And it's not just about perfecting the golf swing, as we know, because you can have the most, as you just pointed out very eloquently a few moments ago, you know, you can be the best-looking ball striker and and out there, but if other parts of your game, like putting, you know, I know a lot of folks uh, that I've seen over the years that can get virtually within reason to, you know, on most par fours and par fives, within two, three at the worst on yeah. par five. Um, but then they're three-putting everything. So, you know, they've gone from potentially a birdie opportunity to certainly a, a more certain par opportunity to now bogeying and even double bogeying in some cases because they yeah. cannot putt the, the ball. Uh, you know, we, as I, you know, I mean, I, uh, along with my, my good friend and co-host, Sidney um, Miller, who's an LPGA professional, we host the Women of Golf every Tuesday mornings. We have had the pleasure over the years of, of bringing on the young winners and, and ladies from the Epson Tour uh, for several years now. And, um, you know, more often than not, when we listen to them and talk to them about their game, they're all hitting great drives. They're all hitting, you know, pretty good approach shots and, and so forth. In fact, we just had a young lady that was on just one, uh, Brittany Yada, who just won the uh, uh, latest uh, oh. uh, Epson Tour event. Yeah. yeah, she was. Yeah, she was on the other day, and uh, this week rather. And uh, you know, she, yeah, she hit 18 out of 18 uh, fairways, uh, uh, greens. Sorry, uh, greens and reg, and um, on her final round, and hit uh, 14 out of 18 fairways. Um, I mean, for two of her rounds. I mean that that's yeah. unheard of. I mean, you know that's that's incredible. Um, but when I looked at her putting stats, um, I mean she still won the tournament. But you know her her putting was good, but it wasn't probably good. And my point that I was making was, you know, a lot of these players, even at the professional level, have become very good ball strikers, uh, can get themselves out of some real jams. But it's their short game, particularly their putting, that more often than not is what lets them down. It's that's the sketchy part of their game, and it's because it's not as much fun to practice. Um, I mean, even for them, I mean, you'll ask them point blank, and that's something that they'll say is it's not as much fun. I mean, they do it because it's a profession, 
but they understand from an amateur standpoint why a lot of amateurs feel that way is it's much more fun working on other aspects of the game like driving and and uh, working with their with their you know irons and hybrids and things like that um, but they know that that's what's you know sinking those putts is what's going to earn them money on the tour um, so you're exactly right i mean you need to focus on all aspects of your game but you need to be able to make it fun and challenge yourself and get a you know get a couple of buddies together and and you know just go up to the range instead of just hitting a bunch of balls i mean you could do that too but uh make some you know some small little side bets you know uh closest to you know maybe pull it back on some lag putts and say you know here's five balls each and you know uh the one that you know gets the closest to to the hole of their five you know um gets lunch bought for them or something like that so you know you can you can add a, a bunch of different things to it um as we get ready to, to wrap up here i'm going to give you just the last few minutes to um basically talk about anything you want to talk um as far as uh, billy casper uh, golf schools and of course the app anything else that you want to share that you want to get out and then just one more time you can let the folks know where they can go to get more information um, not only about uh, the, the golf school and the app of course uh, but uh, also where they can get more information about your dad, too, if they want to read up on, on some of his uh, highlights. Floor's yours. You know, that's, uh, yeah, that's very sweet of you, Ted, and I appreciate that. So on our website, billycasper.com, uh, we have a lot of information, and we have some really wonderful pictures, both of Dad and I together, um, as well as some really wonderful retro pictures of, uh, of him in the, in the late 50s and 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Uh, the interesting thing about Dad that um, it really wasn't until I had been in the industry for 15 years and now having been in the industry for 24 years, it still shocks me when I spend time thinking about what it must be like to have lifted a winner's trophy over 70 times in your career. And to be able to do that and to be number seven in the world of golf and yet be a more than decent human being and a great dad um, was really special. And so when Dad and I started the Billy Casper School of Golf, I really only had three and a half years with him uh, before he passed away. And when he passed away, I wasn't sure how the Billy Casper School of Golf was going to be able to continue in its present format. And so we took the time to figure out the direction. And the direction, I kept coming back to what Dad's ethos was, and that was helping as many people as possible. And because of the digital age that we live in, and because of how easy it is to communicate with people in today's world, mm -hmm. we thought there would be no better way than to have our own app so that people could communicate in real time, get real time lessons, be able to use it for things like GPS and videos and great deals on golf, but have some real sincere aspects to it that are going to help people get better and do it at their pace rather than anybody else's. And so Billy Casper School of Golf has gone digital but our impact with golfers is bigger than ever, and we're very, very, very grateful for that. As far as me personally, Ted, I am absolutely going to continue my father's and my dream of helping as many golfers as possible. 
I'm so fortunate to have been able to be Billy Casper's son, his friend, and his business partner. And just because he's not here doesn't mean that the great things that he did should ever be forgotten or go unnoticed. And it also means that the things I learned from him need to be passed on. And so that's what I'm trying to do, both through Billy Casper School of Golf and the new Casper Golf app coming out. And so, again, I urge people to go to BillyCasper.com and sign up for the newsletter and information on the app. Read a little bit more about the story of Billy Casper, a kid that didn't have shoes until he was six years old and still managed to rise to the top of an industry that back then was not easy to rise to. And so, again, go to BillyCasper.com. I think you're going to be impressed with not only what we're doing, but also where we're going in the future. Very good. Well, once again, thank you for, for joining me, uh, Byron. It's always a pleasure. I always um, feel like I learn a little bit more about your dad, I, as you know, um, and those that have been following the show for a long time. I had the pleasure of having your father on back, I believe it was in 2013, uh, some time ago, and um, and uh, just uh, I think about a year or so before he had passed on. And I uh, had him here on the show, and uh, he was just very humble and very giving of his time. And uh, it wasn't long after that that you and I uh, got to, to meet, um, yep, and uh, and talk and talk, and and we've been uh, uh, chugging along, you and I here for for quite a few years. So <laughs> I really appreciate it's hard, it's hard it. Hard to believe that next year it's going to be a decade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, actually, next I'm season sure I'm going to be Jen, going. But I don't know how I got so old. No, I yeah, I know. <laughs> don't, don't even go there. <laughs> um, but yeah, see, it's going to be season eleven uh, next year uh, for the show, and and yeah, uh, uh, ten years since uh, since uh, his his passing. But uh, yeah, it's uh, he he was a very uh, wonderful man. I wish I had a chance to get to know him a little bit better. But uh, for the short time that I had to. Uh, to have him on the show, I'm very grateful for that, and uh, I always will uh, think of it very, very fondly, and have some great uh, memories of that. And I still remember uh, a lot of the conversation we had on the show. But uh, my friend, thank you as always. You're always welcome to come back, and uh, I look forward to uh, the official launch of the app. I know I'll be uh, uh, aware of that when that happens. But uh, keep me posted, yeah. buddy. And uh, thank you as always for coming on the show. I appreciate you. Uh, being a special guest and of course I uh, uh, always appreciate having you as a friend and uh, have a great well, weekend. I'm, gra- I'm grateful m- for you. Yeah, I'm grateful for you too, Ted, and I just want to give that back to you and say thank you for not only having me on the show but thank you as well. I'm sure your listeners know this, but you are a, uh, a really amazing man and somebody that has an in-depth knowledge of the game of golf and the golf industry as a whole. So it is a a real pleasure to be on your show, and it's even more of a pleasure to be your friend. All right. On that note, we're going to wrap up. Have a great weekend, Byron. I'll talk to you real soon, and again, thank you for coming on tonight. Real pleasure. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest. I know we ran a little bit over time. I uh, always enjoy having Byron on. A very, uh, we've become very good friends, and I'm always excited to hear about what he's doing uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, uh, continuing on the, the legacy of, of uh, legendary Billy Casper. 
and uh, doing, of course, his own thing, but uh, obviously very respectful of respectful of a lot of the teachings that uh, he learned from his father, and, and he's carrying on that tradition. So uh, always excited to see as things begin to unfold. All right, I will be back next week. I'm going to be in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. I'm going to be attending the final event, the Tour Championship for the Epson Tour. Uh, it's going to be taking place in Daytona. Hopefully uh, things will have dried up. They're playing at the, uh, I believe, at the uh, LPJ uh, International uh, in the, in uh, Daytona, as I mentioned, and I'm going to be there uh, next Thursday evening doing my broadcast. So I hope you'll uh, tune in. I'll have another great uh, Coach's Corner panel and another insightful guest, so make sure you tune in. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next time on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.